Hi everyone, this is Mike Spivey of the Spivey Consulting Group, and we have a special sort of different podcast today. It's an interview I did with E to Esquire, and their YouTube channel is linked here. In the interview, we're asked about a number of different things. How to get off a wait list this late in the cycle, what next cycle will look like, both in respect to the applicant pool and also how to differentiate, and then perhaps a particular note, in this recessive economy that we're in, how to stand out and get a job if you're a current law school student. So this is a little bit different. It covers a lot of ground and I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to my channel. My name is Afi. If you're new here, welcome. Today I have Mike Spivey with me and he is the founder of Spivey Consulting. He does work with law school admissions and college admissions. He's really well known for how valuable his advice is. He also runs Spivey Blog where he posts um, motivational articles and podcasts. He's also really accessible on the law school admissions subreddit which is where I first uh, got my interaction with him and he is very very helpful when it comes to advising students in the law school admissions process so that's why we have him here um he will be talking about the pre what pre-law students should expect when it comes to applying what one else should be thinking of as they begin the legal educate begin their legal education and what um current law students should be looking forward to as they approach the job search and the recession so without further ado let's get right into it but before we do so do not forget to like comment and subscribe hi uh, Mike Spivey great to have you on here um, I know this is a very very interesting time for a lot of people the pre-law students incoming 1Ls and current law students. And it's great to have you here to just share your insight on what this process should be like or what students should expect and um, just how to navigate the job search process. So starting off with the pre-law students, what are some strategies you have for applicants trying to outperform their numbers? So my advice for students entering the process is this, you couldn't possibly know how many applications and how le less differentiated the process is unless you've done admissions for multiple years at the undergrad or law school level. When I started this over 20 years ago, we, we used to get paper applications and they would be stacked around our entire departmental suite in these double locked file drawers, right, for, conf for, for confidentiality reasons. All the way around, the if you'd stacked them up one on top of the other, the applications to my law school would have been 10, 15 stories high. <laughs> the problem is when you're applying to law school, you need to differentiate from those 15 stories down to one story. And you mentioned in the intro about, you know, how do you differentiate beyond your numbers? Numbers matter the most, sure. right? A 180 is in the 99.999. That's objective empirical differentiation. But every year, you see people with the same numbers applying to the same schools. Some get admitted. I'm going to try to get the beautiful mountains. In the back. Some get admitted, some get waitlisted, and some get denied. 
so what we what we've done as a firm is we sort of try to dissect why why are these people getting admitted when people with the same background the same numbers getting waitlisted or denied they, they stand out because they tell their own story they don't try to impress an unknown admissions committee they're actually writing their personal statements writing their applications for themselves i'll give you two examples we had a um client apply to a i think she applied to 12 law schools i remember i remember where i was when i called her and said okay applications are off i think you're going to get 11 11 wait lists of the 12 because of her numbers she hit home run after after home run admit after admit and we went back in and we read her application carefully and her personal statement was about learning to ride a bicycle as an adult so many people wouldn't it's a beautiful topic no one had ever written that before to all these law school admissions deans who have read 50,000 law school applications 40,000 of which talk about their summer internship think about how cool that is about she's starting off on a hill in San Francisco and she has tricycles on her bike and she's 24 years old and she's (laughs) crashing into mailboxes but then she went into why she was afraid to ride a bike as a child another one was about Jazzy the cat the fact that I can remember the cat's name <laughs> many years after reading the personal statement, I mean, that, that applicant, again, was just getting admit after admit after admit because writing about how her neighbor had the law take her cat away when she was six years old and lawyers seemed like scary people with long words. Hmm. But that got her interested in the law. And now she was interning at a law firm and, you know, the people didn't seem so scary and the words weren't so scary. That's really interesting. It stood out. So differentiation telling your story is always the key. And for those who have already tried to navigate telling their story, but still somehow end up on the wait list. And we know that the wait list is very brutal. You don't know if you ever get off or just the uncertainty that just being on the wait list brings, what would you suggest applicants do to get off the wait list? Yeah. I mean, the wait, the wait list is hard because the math of the wait list is, is not what most applicants suspect it is. I think students suspect that schools are only waitlisting 100 or 200 people, but they're probably waitlisting, if a school gets 5,000 applications, they're probably waitlisting up to 2,000 people. On the flip side, on the positive side, they're also admitting a lot more people off the application off the waitlist than, than applicants expect. Let me ex- let me explain that. If you're a school and you've admitted admitted someone, that person obviously can only attend one law school. They've probably been admitted to seven, ten, twelve other schools. So one applicant is tending to turn down seven other schools, five other schools. So when you're a law school, you have to admit almost five times as many people as you want to to get matricul- to matriculate to your school. Mm-hmm. So you tend to use the wait list pretty heavily. It's July 8th, I believe. Yes. I think it's a Wednesday. All these days get kind of blurry. <laughs> They're all blended, yeah. Um, what I would say is this. There will be this summer still pretty significant wait list movement when you look at all law schools in general, can I, can I say one law school, Yale Law School, are they going to waitlist? Are they going to admit a lot of people off the waitlist? I don't know. Will Harvard keep admitting people off the waitlist? I don't know. But there will be, over the next 
16 to 20 days, a number of waitlist admits. The cool news is this. So many people have locked in what they're, what they're going to be doing mm-hmm. that they've already told a lot of schools, no, I'm, I'm not interested. So by very nature, the waitlists have become smaller. What I think people want to do is they want to at least twice in the next 20 to 30 days, 20 days, very politely reach out to admissions offices. If you're interested in the school, tell them I am still interested because schools still have needs. We don't know which schools, but we know that many schools out there still have needs. It is so much, this is such critical advice. It is so much easier if you're in admissions, if someone emails you the day that you need to admit five people to go read their application again, then sort through those thousands from the wait list to find one. So sometimes if you just get, get serendipitous luck and time the right, don't email them every day, please goodness no. But if you happen to email, let's say Harvard makes 10 admits today and then Penn loses five people from those 10. If you happen to email Penn three days from now, you might just catch them on the right day where they lost five people. They would much rather look at one application than a thousand. That's true. Because the timing can be lucky, but but you can't, if you don't take the shot, you're going to miss it. So shoot your shot. (laughs) A few more times. Yeah. For sure. Always professionally, always polite. Never say at the end, I look forward to hearing back from you soon. That sounds great when I say it verbally, but when it's said over an email, it sounds passive aggressive. Professional, polite persistence is the way I would alliterate it. That's awesome. And kind of going off your predictions for the next few weeks, do you have any predictions for how this cycle might turn out? And no, there's a lot of undecided, yeah, there's a lot of undecided applicants and if if those if those admitted students end up telling law schools no we're going to defer i think you'll see what what it never feels heavy to applicants because applicants are used to the admission cycle when admit waves come as big waves my hands are always kind of big i like that for waitlist it's more like this rolling effect but if a lot of people decide to either defer or reapply next year these roles are going to be pretty big for the next 20 days. If a lot of people say, you know, whether it's online or in, on campus, I'm going to law school, I'm, I'm ready, then it's going to be smaller roles. Either way, there's going to be weightless movement. I would, I mean, there's going to be weightless movement. Yeah. And for those applying or are in the process of applying to law school, do you have any advice if what they should know as they get into the process or just what to expect you mean for people who are applying for this upcoming cycle yes yeah we're about to publish a blog by the end of the day on our website so spivyconsulting.com we have a blog and they will be on the blog a prediction for the cycle i think the cycle itself is going to be up in applications but i don't think the cycle will necessarily be more competitive because i think schools may increase their class sizes because they need more uh uh, capital infusion mm-hmm. that would in, in, in practical current terms that would mean more students <laughs> right and I don't necessarily think LSAT scores are going to be any higher at the top bandwidth relative to this past cycle I would say that as in every year applying September October November you'll probably get a little bit of a bump 
it's it, for most schools it tends to be easier slightly earlier versus later so before yeah. thanksgiving i would say that if you don't have your maximum lsat you can take it you can take it three times in a cycle and five times in two years so you know if you're scoring in the 170s and you get a 160 i don't care what anyone says online about schools averaging <laughs> well you see all your scores but they want your high score right they want they, they really focus on what you're most capable of so if I were applying to law school and I was choosing, and this is a great question to answer, I think, if I were choosing between applying in September with a 166, but I had been consistently testing at a 167, 168, 170, I would wait, I would wait for that higher score or I would apply in September and say to the schools, I have been, I'm applying to your school because you're, my top, you're at the top of my list, you're one of my top schools, and I wanted to get my application in. But I do want you to know that I've been scoring better and I know I can do better on the LSAT. I think I can do better. So I'm taking it in October, November, and let schools know. So at that point, I, tell them to hold up on reviewing your application until you submit a newer LSAT score. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Schools, yeah. schools will see if you, re, if you register for a future LSAT, mm -hmm. schools will see that. Yeah. And for the income students who are probably in so much anxiety right now, which is very understood, um, do you suggest that they should defer, especially if their school is going completely remotely? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, this is, I wasn't around in 1918. <laughs> so I don't have great advice on deferring versus going online because this is new to me. As part of my doctoral program in higher education, I remember that the online experience back then was shown through research to be not as um, ethical, pedagogically sound, whatever terminology you want to use as in person. But then, I mean, we're talking about 25 years ago, 20 years ago. Sure. I do know that schools are investing a lot of money, unlike ever before, into training their faculty for online platforms. I think the experience is going to be better than it was in the fall. In, I'm sorry, in the spring, yeah. when schools had to send everyone home and then go online. It'll be more organized. As far as my recommendation for deferring versus taking maybe a semester online, I think that's an individual choice, whatever people feel most comfortable with. I wish I had better things to go on. Um, I don't. I think that's an individual choice. It's that's a very valid. Good <laughs> yeah, that is very valid. And for those that still plan on attending school, even though it's going to be remote, do you have any advice on how to approach learning online or just best ways to succeed? Yeah, I, so, I mean, I run a company of 30-something consultants, and we're, we've been virtual for our entire company's existence, and we're successful. And I think one of the reasons why we're successful is I get up very early, I shower, I dress, you know, I dress like I'm going in mostly into an office mm -hmm. and I start my day as if it's a work day. And to the credit of my consultants, they all do the same. I mean, you know, they don't all get up at 3 a.m., but some work later. Yeah. They don't all work weekends, but some work long, full five-hour days, but they all treat it like a job versus a hobby. Right. I would say that when you start your law school career, you're, you're actually starting your legal career not just your law school career. So I would say to incoming students, even if you're at home, say to yourself every morning, this is my job now. This is my profession. 
So I'm not going to just work. I'm going to school. The way the faculty see me present myself, if I'm chewing tobacco on a Zoom class, am I going to ask that faculty member for a recommendation for a lot for for Gibson Dunn to hire me? What's that faculty member going to say? I mean, you know, I don't do any I don't do any Zoom calls in a T-shirt, and I would love to. Personally, it would be comfortable. I'm kind of baking in the sun right now. So honestly, sure. So, but I, you know, because I, I treat this as my job, and I think if you treat school as the start of your legal profession, that'll bleed over to whether it's online or in person. That's true. And for the qualities that you tend to find in successful law students, what would you say those are? Yeah, I love that question. I have taught, but I taught at the undergraduate level. I've never taught at the law school level, nor, nor will I ever uh, be asked to do that. I don't. <laughs> I, um, but I am a former dean of career services as well. I did career services as well as admissions. Within about three minutes of meeting a student, I could always tell if they were going to get a job or not. I, I can't tell you which ones I could tell would be in the top ten percent of the class. The ones that would always get a job sooner rather than sooner rather than the ones that would get it later were always the ones that seemed to approach the job search process with a sort of a, almost like a fun, ebullient, very professional, but almost like this is a fun part of my life. <laughs> the ones that were so, and this is going to happen, this is going to be a tough next two years. True. Lots of students are going to get, understandably so, you, you know, they're going to hear the word no more than you've ever heard in your life. And if you're yeah. used to firing out blind emails to thousands of firms, you're going to get a lot of no answers. In some sense, that's even more, I mean, research shows that's even more stressful than no. Mm -hmm. You'd almost rather negative feedback than no feedback. Right. That's true. As that happens, more and more people are going to get more and more anxious and stressed. And the natural human tendency is going to be for successful law students. All right, I'm going to proactively now send three more emails to the same firm. You almost want to do the opposite. You want to do as much points of contact in person. So you want to send an email and say, I will follow up with a phone call in five business days. And then when you're, if you get a hiring professional on the phone, even if you're like understandably super stressed out that day, fake it for the 10 minutes they give you. Right. Smile when you're on the phone, smile when you're on a Zoom. I've had three kind of stressful phone calls this morning. But I'm in a good mood. I came outside for a reason. I mean, you see how beautiful it is. <laughs> right. And, you know, when people who are applying for jobs are the kind of people you want to be around, the odds of an employer hiring you go up dramatically. Also, kind of similar to my admissions advice, law students need to be themselves. The yeah, kind of law student that is, can smile and make a joke during an interview, I mean, obviously don't force a joke in there, but the kind of person that has the self-confidence and the wherewithal to know when to be serious, but also when to sort of lighten the moment, much more likely is going to get a job offer than the kind of law student is, who's just like frantically taking notes and just a little bit too amped up. And trust me, I'm an amped up person, so I wish I had given myself this advice 25 years ago. <laughs> All the type A people. Yeah, we're, we all populate this profession. <laughs> yeah, and when it comes to, I guess, navigating just the job process, 
given that we're in a recession, do you think that students should be, I guess, reaching out to law firms and places they're interested in working after graduation or in the summer now? Or is it something that given the pandemic, the career fairs are on halt until the spring? And so things are not really going to work as smoothly as they right. did in the past. Yeah, that's, that's also a good question. I would say this, as someone who's hired, you know, a, a large number of people in my career, if someone were to reach out to me now very professionally and very politely, and I didn't have a hiring need, but then I heard from them in January and they said, I know you didn't have a hiring need in July and you gave me a rough idea that I should reach back out in January. So I'm, you know, on my end of the, of the equation, I'm just, you know, trying to reach out when there might be one, I would probably remember that person. Mm -hmm. So I have no qualms about law school students contacting employers, firms, government agencies, nonprofits now. The key is you, if you do it now, you don't want to every month get more and more anxious and more and more stressed if you don't hear back. And if they don't respond, it just means they're busy. So never take no response as a no or a, it's, it's never personal. It's never personal. Yeah. I get 350 emails a day. It's not possible for me to respond to everyone immediately. So some, sometimes I'll respond four days later and then I'll get this weird email back that, that will say, oh, thank you. I'm so glad you responded. I thought you were mad at me. <laughs> I don't know you. I, how, how can I be mad at you? Right. The reason why I share that is it's the same thing with hiring. If you don't hear, if someone doesn't email you back or call, return your phone call, but you still email them a few months later professionally and act like it was no big deal to them, that's going to impress them. That's good. If you leave a voicemail and you say, I will call you back in five days, I know you're busy, and I promise not to take up more than five to 10 minutes of your time, that's going to impress them. If you leave a frantic, anxious voicemail, or even worse, just send a thousand emails that say, you know, it's a typical cover letter. If, if my values align with your firms, I would love to hear back from you. You're probably not going to hear back from them. Mm-hmm. But if maybe if you follow that up with a phone call a week later or just an email, a very professional email three months later, not anxious, not nervous, very professional and upbeat, that person might remember that you reached out in, in August. Sure. To answer your question more directly, I have no problem with students reaching out now and then reaching out again at the beginning of, the, of 2021. A lot of people are anxious because you don't know what to expect and things are just not going to be the norm anymore. So at this, least is what I would, this is what I would say to the people who are anxious. The best way I could put it is this. If you're watching this interview this uh, on your wonderful channel, the more other people, the, the longer, un unfortunately, this recessive economy drags out the more other people are going to get anxious and anxiety impacts behavior. True. So if you think of other people's it, behavior being impacted negatively and you're staying at a baseline, that's the best way to differentiate. Yeah, that, that is very, very true. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, I hope that was helpful. Yes, this is great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Really Thank you for watching. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. And if you have any videos you want me to record, definitely leave them down in the comments. And I will see you in my next video.